You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. My name is Scott Radnitz. I am an associate professor at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Uh, in fall of last year, while much of the world was distracted with other things, Armenia and Azerbaijan re-engaged in an ongoing but frozen conflict that had presumably ended in 1994. The resurgence of the conflict was unexpected but also unsurprising in hindsight. The result of the war was that Azerbaijan regained territory that it had lost in the first war, including part of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. Residents of Nagorno-Karabakh fled to Armenia. Meanwhile, uh, internally displaced persons from the previous war uh, who were settled in Azerbaijan are probably going to be resettled in Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia brokered a ceasefire and brought in peacekeeping troops. Turkey backed Azerbaijan in the war. Azerbaijan used new drone warfare tactics to devastating effect, and an estimated uh, 5,000 people were killed in the conflict. In short, as in many post-Soviet conflicts, the origins are local, and the attention of the world was elsewhere. The US, for its part, was almost completely absent. But there are important geopolitical implications that will shape the contours of the region's politics for years to come. So this panel will discuss the origins and implications of this war. We have three speakers who will talk for about 15 minutes, followed by questions, which uh, you can enter into the chat. And they'll be addressing why the war erupted at this juncture and the domestic and regional factors which led to the war, and to speak more generally about what they see happening um, in the coming years. So I'll introduce our three speakers, and then we'll get started. First will be Philip. Gamagelian, an assistant professor at the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. He teaches courses in conflict analysis and resolution, mediation, politics of memory, and program design, monitoring, and evaluation. He's the author of Conflict Resolution Beyond the, Beyond the International Relations Paradigm, Evolving Designs as a Transformative Practice in Nagorno-Karabakh and Syria. He is also a conflict resolution scholar practitioner and co-founder and board member of the Imagine Center for Conflict Transformation and the managing editor of Caucasus Edition Journal of Conflict Transformation. Our second speaker will be Kamal Maliki Aliyev, senior lecturer at Malmo University and an affiliated researcher at the Roe Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law. He is the author of Contested Territories and International Law about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Maliki Aliyev worked in the fields of international law and international relations as a senior research fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies and as a senior legal officer in the Ministry of Defense of Azerbaijan. Our third speaker is Rashad Kasaba, the Ann and Kenneth Pyle Professor of US Foreign Policy and an expert in the history and politics of Turkey and the Middle East at the Jackson School of International Studies. Kasaba worked as the director of the Jackson School for 10 years, completing his tenure in June 2020. He is currently researching the history of U.S. foreign policy in Turkey and the political consequences of the rural-urban divide in modern Turkey. 
So uh, without further ado, uh, we'll hear from Philip. And uh, as I mentioned, if you do have questions, please enter them into the chat box and we'll try to get to them after all three speakers have finished. Thank you, Scott. Thank you everyone for the invitation. Uh, we were proposed to start uh, from a question of why now? Why did the war happen uh, in this particular juncture uh, and not sometime earlier or later? And then follow up with a couple of other questions. Uh, starting from why now, I would say I, the war was hardly unexpected for any one of us who was following this conflict closely. And I'll start from some more geopolitical and broader reasons for it and then get to the more local ones. Uh, so one international general development that contributed to this uh, in my analysis was the imminent election of Joe Biden as the president of the United States, uh, which was clear already by summer of 2020. Uh, prior to him, uh, starting from Obama and uh, intensifying under Trump presidencies, the United States has been continually withdrawing from the South Caucasus and under Trump, of course, uh, from the world in general. Uh, and while it's not clear how more engage, engaged Trump, uh, sorry, Biden administration uh, would have been, it would probably be much more engaged than the Trump one. Uh, plus Biden personally had uh, a good long history of supporting uh, democratic developments uh, in the post-Soviet space, particularly in Ukraine and in Georgia. And considering that Armenia at that point, yep, about a few months ago, was still on the path uh, towards democratization, there could have been a more active in engagement from the side of the United States as Biden took over. Uh, and that certainly was an incentive uh, for the regional powers uh, to make sure that their control over the region is solidified and essentially the US has very little space to come back in. Um, so if you look into the outcome of the war, it certainly increased the role of Turkey uh, dramatically. It has been a somewhat marginal actor in the South Caucasus until now. Now it's a, a clearly a very central actor. Uh, and of course, uh, it also consolidated further the role of Russia as a, a main power broker uh, and regional power in the region. Uh, if you think uh, prior to this war, all the Everything was coordinated by a Minsk group of co-chairs of mediators, which included Russia, United States, and France. The current ceasefire agreement is uh, brokered unilaterally and very demonstratively unilaterally by Russia. And the other two Minsk group countries have been absent uh, both from the signing of the agreement and all the follow-up developments. The second uh, somewhat uh, related development, uh, again, connected to the democratization of um, Armenia or rather an attempt to democratize uh, of Armenia uh, is that if you look back uh, to the history of the region, the countries that attempted to democratize, uh, namely Ukraine uh, in 2014, Georgia prior, prior to that in 2003, soon after were faced by an intensified conflicts and lost territories. Something very similar happened now with Armenia. Its attempt to democratize was followed by an intensified conflict and a loss of Armenia's control over the Nagorno big parts of Nagorno-Karabakh and other territories that it controlled. So that seems to be a pretty clear pattern, uh, which sends a message not only to Armenia, uh, but to other uh, former Soviet republics as well that attempts to democratize 
uh, might have devastating consequences. And most immediately, it's certainly a message to Belarus, for example, that's going through its own attempt to democratize, but also to people of Azerbaijan, for example. And uh, the message is landing because I could see many former uh, pro-democracy activists recently more and more uh, publicly voicing an opinion that uh, the attempts to democratize might not have played in favor of Georgia or Armenia or Ukraine, and Azerbaijan uh, staying consistently authoritarian might uh, be better off than these other countries in the region. Having said this, at this broader kind of development, don't take any responsibility away and primary responsibility still stays with the parties to the conflict uh, who, for the war, who, despite continually negotiating, uh, starting from the ceasefire signed after the first Karabakh war in 1994, uh, although they were negotiating on the official level, did nothing uh, to prepare their states or their populations uh, for peace in the past 26 years. To the contrary, they did everything to prepare uh, the states and the populations for a new war. Uh, they have been the continually ranked in the past few years as the most militarized per capita countries, some of the most uh, militarized countries per capita uh, in the world. So the arms race was uh, of a very major proportions considering the budgets of these two countries. Uh, the hate speech uh, and the propaganda that was building an image of the other as an enemy to be continually uh, fought with uh, has been, I would say on the level of indoctrina indoctrination was there from uh, early years of school, uh, continuing with all the media and the political rhetoric and commemorations and so on, where no country took responsibility for anything they've done during the first war or their contribution to the conflict was completely denied and they only focused on what the other side has done wrong. Now, Azerbaijan in particular, perhaps as a country that uh, was on the losing end of the conflict uh, in the 90s, uh, had a particularly harsh rhetoric. It never gave any indication to the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh that they could uh, peacefully uh, coexist with Azerbaijanis if Karabakh was to somehow be uh, part of Azerbaijan. The rhetoric was extremely harsh, uh, dehumanizing, uh, a lot of times racist and overtly aggressive, uh, making Armenians feel that this is a fight for survival and not uh, a political question over territory or autonomy. Armenia, in its turn, also committed uh, a number of major uh, mistakes. To put it mildly, uh, one the major one, I would say that the last three administrations uh, led by Kocheran, Sarkisyan and Pashinyan currently, uh, perpetrated was that they uh, erased the distinction between the Nagorno-Karabakh autonomy, Soviet time Nagorno-Karabakh autonomy, which was the initially disputed territory, which is the territory where Armenians tried to uh, speak about rights and discrimination and talk about potential independence or autonomy for that region, uh, and the seven occupied territories of Azerbaijan that Armenian forces took control of during the war. Uh, and initially in 90s, it was just a bargaining chip or a buffer zone that was to be returned to Azerbaijan. But with time, uh, administration after administration decided to essentially annex these territories and refuse to return. And that really uh, played very much against Armenia because uh, from a conflict over rights uh, of Armenian population, 
it was internationally increasingly perceived as a conflict over Armenian occupation of Azerbaijani territories, because the seven territories uh, had no Armenian population prior to war and uh, were not part of the Karabakh autonomy. Uh, so it was a major blunder, in my view. <clears throat> Coming closer to the current uh, events, the Pashinyan government, the current government, uh, while trying to be democratic, uh, at the same time adopted a much harder line on Nagorno-Karabakh compared to any previous uh, administration. I believe it was a very short-sighted uh, policy and perhaps even incompetence. Uh, they effectively refused to negotiate around any document that was uh, put on the table in over past 20, 30 years, uh, particularly Madrid principles or its variation called Lavrov plan, which was um, similar to Madrid principles, but with heavier Russian involvement. And um, uh, effectively by refusing to negotiate over anything that was on the table, pushing, putting forth much more uh, kind of aggressive demands, uh, it also uh, sped up uh, and the war. It uh, really helped the war to approach, making it uh, somewhat uh, inevitable in the past year or so. Coming to the question of the November 9 agreement, uh, which was uh, the ceasefire agreement that stopped the war um, that took place in September to November of 2020. I was asked the question, what certainties does it bring and what certainties does it bring? In terms of certainties, it removed a few uh, major points of discussion in the previous, of the previous phases of the peace process. Uh, one of them was the question of the seven Azerbaijani districts uh, around the former Nagorno-Karabakh autonomy uh, that were uh, to be returned to Azerbaijan under certain conditions. Well, currently, as a result of the war, excuse me, Azerbaijan already controls them. And unfortunately for Armenia, uh, if this was achieved through negotiations, these territories were to be remained demilitarized for an indefinite amount of time and that's where the peacekeeping forces were to be stationed. Now, these territories are very much militarized, uh, which in practice means that the Armenian population remaining in Nagorno-Karabakh is now surrounded by Azerbaijani army from all the sides, uh, but also that the Azerbaijani army is standing very close to the borders of Armenia itself. So any kind of future escalation, future war might endanger the territory of the Republic of Armenia itself. Having said that, again, the question of return of territories is now removed from the negotiating table. Another one that's re resolved is the question of peacekeepers. There was long uh, debate of who should be peacekeepers. Uh, it uh, was assumed to be some form of an international force. That question is also resolved, obviously. The sole peacekeeper on the ground is uh, Russia, Russian army. Now, what comes to, when it comes to the uncertainties, there are many of these as well, and perhaps many more. Uh, one is the question of the status of the Nagorno-Karabakh, the original reason for the conflict. It's obviously not resolved. Uh, the independence of Karabakh seemed to be out of uh, question for at least any foreseeable future, which was something the Armenian side was asking for. Um, but some solution uh, to the to the reason the conflict started in the first place, the rights of the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh is still very much on the table. Um, right now, the conversations seem to be potentially at least between a cultural or 
political territorial autonomy, but that might be something that negotiations in the future would focus on. Uh, but the document gave no indication uh, as to what that might look like. Uh, a more immediate concern uh, concerns are humanitarian. We have still many prisoners of war, uh, particularly a big number of them is held by Azerbaijan. Uh, and there are many reports of mistreatment and torture. And if the war is over, uh, which is the rhetoric that's coming uh, from Baku last, it was voiced by President Aliyev just two, three days ago in the meeting in Moscow with President Putin and Prime Minister Pashinyan. So if the war is over, why are sides holding two prisoners of war or to any uh, thing like that? And why are other humanitarian uh, issues not being resolved? For example, why is uh, Azerbaijani army entering a particular uh, village uh, or a town populated by Armenians forcing the residents to flee because if we do not have a war, irrespective of who uh, the territory belongs to, the peaceful population should have the right to live, these are, to live there. And these are basic norms that should be upheld and yet, yet they are not. And then we can move to bigger questions of uh, transitional justice, for example, because there have been many war crimes pretty well documented during this last war, but there have been also many war crimes committed during the first war that were never addressed. And they, kind of keeping them unaddressed, uh, perpetrators not punished, uh, their wrongs not acknowledged and apologies not extended, means that the enmity between the two sides remains, the possibility of the violence remains. And uh, it's very hard to imagine for each of the side to live in peacefully with the other, which is a precondition, of course, for long-term peace. And the final and biggest, uh, perhaps, uncertainty is whether the war is over or rather the conflict is over and whether there will be a new war down the road or not. The way the rhetoric is going right now is pretty hostile from Azerbaijan and you have quite a few revanchist voices in Armenia. So the conflict is clearly not resolved and the chance uh, for a new war sometime down the road uh, still exists. And the big, rather scary part here is that the conflict is also regionalized. If in the past it has been very clearly between Armenia and Azerbaijan only, currently it already has Russian and Turkish uh, troops on the ground. Uh, that means also that Iran and more global actors uh, might be um, interested in staking out their own uh, position and role if there is a new war. So the new war, and here I'm quoting uh, Girard Liparitian, uh, who during a different webinar just two days ago brought this up, and I agree with that if there is a new war, the excuse might be the Karabakh, uh, but the war will be over the entire South Caucasus. So it will not be a war, a localized war as we had it over a small part of Nagorno-Karabakh, but it's a full South Caucasus-wide war that includes many regional uh, and global actors, something that looks much more like Syria than uh, current Nagorno-Karabakh. And that's something that should scare, in my view, uh, not only Armenia uh, and Azerbaijan, but even Georgia and pretty much everybody else in that region as well. Um, so I think I'll wrap up here and uh, say that if we are to move uh, towards peace, which I think is the only way that the countries of the region can ensure that they maintain some sovereignty over their uh, long-term uh, future, uh, some control over their long-term future, direct communication and normalization of relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan is necessary. That should include 
things uh, that are not only economic ties, but also agreement on the status of Nagorno-Karabakh and transitional justice measures, along with a very major effort to rehumanize each other and stop the kind of hate speech and hate rhetoric that is prevalent as of today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and now we will hear from Kamal Makili Aliyev. Thank you very much, uh, Scott. Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, it's good to be here on the panel with you again. Uh, I would like to also uh, con contribute to approximately the same issues that you, that you have raised. Um, you gave a very uh, good overview of the international situation in terms of the global politics. I'll focus a little bit more on the region, what's been happening in the region. Uh, that led to this uh, escalation uh, of the conflict and active hostilities, because uh, personally, I would say that the war, uh, it's right now being dubbed the second Karabakh war. I think the war in Karabakh never stopped. The ceasefire that was reached was never a peace agreement. It was never established peace and uh, uh, it was frequently breached with different levels of intensity and the uh, uh, since 1994, the most intense fighting uh, have been uh, happening last fall. Uh, but prior to this, the region have seen the same spiral of uh, that we've seen for the last uh, four years after the 2016 escalation uh, with very rapid ups and downs ups in terms of that after 2016 es escalation uh, there was at some at some point hope that this is going to be a wake-up call for for both sides to negotiate on a peaceful solution and go forward with what has been on the table uh, from a very early point in the negotiations uh, and the Minsk group would be able to finally push its agenda or at least try it as much uh, as possible, as hard as possible to do that. That, was, uh, that wasn't the case. And in around 2018, uh, the mood was uh, completely opposite. It was very pessimistic in the negotiations on the peaceful resolution of Nagorno-Karabakh conflict when the change in government in Armenia happened. And then another up came with it because uh, the hope even in Azerbaijan was that the Pashinyan's government, who was seen as a change from a very, uh, a, a very nationalistic, a very far uh, right government, uh, Republican Party, that would that change to somebody who is going to be uh, clearly with a liberal agenda, uh, going to be looking forward to the peaceful resolution, and then something might change in the negotiations process. There was that up, there was that hope. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that quickly changed to another down and very pessimistic situation where Pashinyan to secure, uh, to secure the political credit at home sacrificed uh, foreign policy agenda, especially towards Azerbaijan, towards the negotiations about Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, to radicalize it more than even the nationalistic government in Armenia prior to that uh, was uh, holding as their baseline. Uh, 
So we arrived into a situation where populism prevailed in the in the policy, and things uh, like the statements from Armenian government started to happen, especially from Minister of Defense, saying that the uh, war for new territories is going to be a new paradigm in the pol policy of the Ministry of Defense, meaning that if new war starts, Armenia is going to gain more territories that have been supported by the statements from parliament, but that, and there have been statements from Pashinyan also, as Phil noted, there was uh, basically a shift in uh, political view of the situation from Pashinyan side, and maybe it was a incompetence and maybe pure populism, but uh, it ended up with him declaring that Karabakh is Armenia and that's it. Uh, basically, even going against the policy that Armenia had pursued that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has a separate state. And that, of course, uh, all led to the crystallization of idea in Azerbaijan that the negotiations are becoming obsolete uh, and that everything, uh, any change uh, when it comes to security situation in the line of contact or border with Armenia um, started to be seen as the continuation of the declared policy of escalation of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And so when the escalation happened during the summer of the last year, 2020, uh, it was perceived in, in, in Azerbaijan as exactly that, as a continuation of the escalating policy uh, of Armenia. But I would say that the start of the war, another, the start of the war was preconditioned by another event. And it's not about what kind of statements Armenian government have been doing uh, with regards to Karabakh and regards to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, but what happened during the um, escalation uh, in summer 2020. And that was uh, a death, a killing of the Azerbaijani major general. Taking out such a high level military target uh, wasn't and cannot be blamed on, on Armenia as doing something illegal because it was a war and was warlike situations. It, even from the moral point, point of view, if you are not a hardline pacifist, there is an understanding that the soldiers are there to fight and die. But from the state to state relations, from the international relations point of view, that kind of move put Azerbaijan in the situation where it had to evaluate if there was a situation of the last resort for Azerbaijan. Uh, because if you put an out to the situation with the, the killing of Iran in general by United States, even the United States, a nuclear superpower, was nervous about the response. In the situation where you have Azerbaijan with much more developed military capabilities, uh, developed economy, demographically and territorially bigger than Armenia, that situation uh, could not have been misread uh, more badly by, by Armenia and what kind of responses were going to be. And I think that tipped the understanding in Azerbaijan, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, not an understanding, but a view in Azerbaijan 
that it wasn't a situation of the last resort. It tipped it over the edge. Uh, and the risks have been evaluated to be uh, more if Azerbaijan will not respond uh, with the promises that it already made uh, from approximately 2006 that it's, it is going to use force to uh, restore its territorial integrity. Um, it was evaluated that the other risks, which have been very high, uh, became suddenly lower. And such risks were, of course, that war is risky. It, it's not something that you would start lightly because it carries uh, with it uh, a possibility of a second defeat or second uh, failure after 1994. Geopolitically, it was risky because the reaction of regional states was uh, not certain, not 100% for sure. Economic risks, uh, because the energy infrastructure of Azerbaijan and its export infrastructure is lies very close to the conflict area. It carried the uh, risks of social uh, uh, outbreak, if something should go wrong during the course of the war, the risks were plenty. But suddenly Azerbaijan found it in a situation where it understood that this was, uh, they were outweighed by the uh, risks that would come if the response would be something less than war. And that's how we arrived to the situation of another um, major escalation, the renewal of hostilities in this war. Uh, and the fighting that took place after, afterwards. What happens after we already know, and Phil has already uh, given a brief uh, account of the agreement that has been reached and the situation on the ground and, and the change status quo that uh, is right, right now um, uh, seen as the situation where the uh, Russia have gained the most out uh, of uh, the results of the hostilities. It was able to come in with the peacekeeping force, uh, but also that it uh, been able to establish this kind of a dual, uh, a dual ability to both serves as an incentive for peace and also have a political influence on both states uh, and that led uh, to the crystallization of a new status quo that though changed does not as Phil also mentioned resolve the conflict in essence because we still have an Armenian minority there in the territories guarded by the peace, peacekeepers uh, they all have a questions of their minority rights and the security. There's also a question of the territorial integrity uh, because Azerbaijan is not an effective control of, over its own recognized territory. And so the questions remain and the status, of course, as, as, as a question um, remains. What I would uh, stress is that um, albeit uh, the outcome that some, for some may be validated as uh, only negative, for some as only positive, I would say the change status quo at least presents an opportunity, an opportunity to try to tackle and establish a long-lasting peace. And first and foremost, long-lasting peace is 
and effective prevention of a war erupting again. And in my research, I was always comparing the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict with a resolved conflict over the Oland Islands, the archipelago of islands between Finland and Sweden, where you have a Swedish population on the islands that belonged to the Finnish territory. Um, that was resolved as early as in 1921, exactly when uh, the problem of Nagorno-Karabakh solidified in the Soviet Union. In order not to go deep into that case, one of the elements of this case is demilitarization and neutralization of the territory of the Holland Islands. That is one of the key uh, elements that ensured its lasting peace because the territory is, I would say, maybe as an extension, it was very strategic in the Baltic Sea from the military political point of view. And that effective neutralization, demilitarization of the territory allowed for, uh, for more lasting peace, not only between Sweden and Finland, but between the Baltic states as well, who also were there in the agreement on demilitarization and neutralization. So, I mean, including Russia, and including even Norway, which is which lies a little bit outside the region, but still has a part in the agreements on demilitarization and neutralization status. So something like that uh, can be a very, very effective tool if it's supported regionally. Say a treaty between Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, and the regional powers, uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, effectively serving as guarantors of neutralization of demilitarization territory would take out the military uh, option from everybody's sides in effectively securing the region from uh, future wars. And the, and the status is, of course, the um, question of the balance between uh, the rights of a minority living there and the territorial integrity of the state which can also be based uh, on the large autonomy of, of the Oland Islands, making it not only uh, making it not only just cultural autonomy, but giving uh, a closer connection between two states, Armenia and Azerbaijan, united in the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh, for example. So something like that would resolve both the issues of the status and the issues of security, and at, at least the case that I am promoting uh, is very much um, applicable to the situation uh, that we have in Nagorno-Karabakh. If you think about it, for 10 years, both Holland Islands, for 100 years, both Holland Islands and Nagorno-Karabakh were uh, parts of the same sovereign state, Imperial Russia. The withdrawal of the empire created those questions initially between states. And we're seeing this that it's that this process is continuous, and continuously creating the problem uh, that actually uh, happened with the dissolution of the empire. But of course, the reality check here is as Philip also mentioned, the 
enmity that that we have between the states, the continuous enmity. And uh, I wouldn't say that uh, the Azerbaijan is uh, more uh, guilty of the both hate speech and demonization of the other side than Armenia. I think two sides are infamously equal in trying to demonize each other. Uh, the same would apply for the war crimes uh, that have been committed both uh, during the beginning of the war in the 90s and now. Uh, those unfortunate events, of course, have to be addressed. Uh, Azerbaijan tried to, to creep into that zone of uh, addressing those issues, looking for a reciprocal response. It haven't seen it yet. Uh, hopefully, when Armenia was, is able to deal with the issues, it also can start the process, and maybe it's going to escalate on both sides addressing those painful issues without addressing which there's of course the lasting peace is uh, going to be under question uh, those questions are going to stay uh, as a uh, painful wound and they will need to be addressed sooner or later uh, however i would say much more important here is the process of reopening of the contacts and the economic relations and that have proven, at least in Europe, to be a unifying factor, the first unifying factor um, for the post-war Europe. Uh, it was a process that wasn't by any means uh, light or easy and not without pain, but it is achievable. And I think the latest development uh, in form of a new statement agreement that uh, has basically happened in the beginning of the week. Uh, the uh, decision to open the regional communications and that there's going to be a common working group uh, working with the questions is a very positive development because that step, that opening of the borders is also a step towards a more lasting peace simply because when the communications are open, and when there is a benefit on the ground from the open communications, it's much harder to rationalize going to war because now there is something to lose. If in the situation where you have a breach of communications uh, already happening, the nationalistic rhetoric seems, the demonization seems much more credible than when you have something to lose from the uh, connection between uh, you and the other side. Uh, I think I'll stop here and uh, answer your questions after uh, Rishat has spoken. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, and now Professor Rishat Kassava. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I uh, really uh, very informative presentations about what's going on on the ground. Uh, I will say a few things about the uh, the growing sort of uh, participation of uh, outside uh, actors, especially, of course, uh, primarily Turkey, and and what this may mean for uh, Turkey itself and also for the region. Uh, a lot of my my main argument uh, in this respect is that what Turkey is doing in uh, the Caucasus uh, with respect to this particular conflict has a lot to do with Turkey's domestic politics 
Uh, this is actually not that unusual. Uh, many uh, foreign policy adventures recently and around the world uh, can be linked to what's going on within uh, the particular country. Uh, in Turkey itself, there is this image of uh, Turkey now under Erdogan becoming powerful and a regional power, exerting its influence and shaping uh, what's going on in its neighborhood. Uh, there may be some truth to that, uh, we will see, uh, but it is also true uh, that a lot of this posturing on the part of Turkey has to do with its, uh, with the Turkish governments, Erdogan's government's domestic weakness um, in, in many areas. In particular, this has to do with economy. Uh, it has to do with uh, the growing power of political opposition, not only on the left, but also on the right. Uh, and also uh, the transition from uh, Trump administration that uh, was a lot more lenient and um, forgiving and open to Erdogan, to Biden, uh, where I think we're likely to see much more emphasis on uh, international organizations, issues that have to do with human rights, et cetera. So, um, so that is all these things actually put the Turkish government in a somewhat compromised weak position domestically and these external um, adventures or forays into different parts of the world um, gives it some, buys it some space. Now this, um, uh, I have to say that in Turkey itself, across the political spectrum, uh, it is very hard to find a vocal opposition uh, to uh, Turkey's uh, taking the side of Azerbaijan uh, and, and uh, intervening and playing this decisive role. Uh, it is a popular step and that has a lot to do with what's going on in Turkey and in Turkish history. So um, I, um, you know, the idea uh, of a uh, Turkish community extending from the Balkans all the way into Central Asia, uh, into China, et cetera, has a strong place in Turkish nationalist ideology. Um, this has to do a lot uh, with all kinds of factors, but over the years, there were a number of exile intellectuals from the Tsarist Empire, Russian Empire. Subsequently, of course, later on from uh, the communist uh, Soviet Union. But there's, there were some um, uh, ideologues, some uh, intellectuals uh, who kind of contributed to these discussions within uh, the late Ottoman Empire and also in Turkey. And in this, in this kind of universe, Azerbaijan occupies a special place. It's seen as a gateway into this broader Turkish world, uh, but also, of course, uh, especially linguistically, it is the, um, the closest uh, group community to, to modern Turkey. Um, and there is that kind of affinity that people feel. But at close examination, if you look at this rhetoric, if you look at these discussions, it immediately kind of displays a profound lack of knowledge about what it is this world that people are talking about and what it means uh, to have that kind of affinity and what Turkey can do about it. Ironically, this somehow, um, of course, has part of has to do with the Cold War uh, when uh, there were these, you know, uh, barriers uh, between the Soviet and the Soviet Union and its, um, you know, um, 
the countries that were part of the Soviet umbrella and Turkey, which was very strongly allied with uh, the West and, and is a member of NATO. So there was little exchange, little understanding, but nevertheless, even though there's always this rhetoric about our Turkish brothers, et cetera, if you look at it, um, even in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, it was very close. Uh, within Turkey itself, the knowledge about what it is that people are fighting about, what is this history, it's very hard to find really a, um, a really uh, satisfactory knowledge and explanation. Uh, just to give you an example, recent example, uh, in uh, December, um, when uh, Erdogan visited uh, Azerbaijan to celebrate uh, the recent victory, uh, in the ceremonies, um, he um, uh, read a poem, uh, and he thought that this was going to go down well, but it turned out that this poem was written by a poet who is known to be very much a profound sort of supporter of this pan-Turkish union, but not only that, the poem questioned uh, Azerbaijan's boundaries with Iran, and it really offended the Iranians. It almost led to a uh, international conflict uh, and had to be um, explained away. It turned out that uh, Erdogan himself was not also very well informed about these sensitivities, local sensitivities. Similarly, uh, during this trip, uh, Turkish uh, official Turkish news agency uh, wrote, had an article on their website uh, celebrating that, saying that this was the second time that Turkey was uh, helping Azerbaijan to defend its national identity and its borders, and the first time being in 1918, in the summer of 1918, when the Ottoman army according to this, um, uh, the, the article, uh, intervened and helped Azerbaijan to establish its first independent uh, national sort of uh, unity. Now there's some truth to that, but it is really a complicated story. Uh, what happened actually is that it was the remnants of the Ottoman army at the very end, final months, if not days of World War I, uh, they did intervene. Uh, and it was, the army was led by um, uh, the brother of Enver Pasha, who was one of the leader, leading Young Turk uh, commanders, leaders. Uh, it was uh, one of the very last sort of ditch efforts of uh, First World War. Uh, and they did manage uh, to, um, to conquer territory, to establish some kind of an Azerbaijan um, state there. But it was quickly overwhelmed, of course, uh, uh, later on. Uh, by Bolsheviks and uh, it led to a whole different history. In any event, uh, months after this conflict, there was armistice and the Ottoman army had to be disbanded and the commanders had to go back to Turkey. So, uh, so it's not really a, um, a you know, uh, kind of, uh, it's a very uh, limited, perhaps a, a strange, peculiar time, but to see that as a reference point for what's going on now, uh, is really historically very, um, very misleading, I think. Now, in terms of ideology, I said uh, the idea of this uh, global Turkish community uh, plays a very important role in Turkish nationalist ideology. Uh, Ziya Gökalp, uh, who, was, who was the major uh, sort of ideologue of, of ethnic nationalism in Turkey, uh, talked about Turan as this mythical land uh, and then this red apple, Kızıl Enma, was the source of knowledge, source of power uh, for this uh, mythical land. 
uh, that Turkey potentially had this, Turks had this potential to expand and cover all these territories. But if you look at closely what this land is, uh, what the source of knowledge is, uh, Red Elma, uh, it's all very, very confusing, very, very unclear. But like all ideologies, it's so unclear and vague uh, that it can be used by political leaders uh, for all kinds of purposes, uh, for all kinds of ends. Uh, and I think that is partly what we are witnessing, um, especially on the part of these external powers as they get involved in this conflict. Uh, ideologies, of course, uh, are confusing and conf conflicting, but they can be very uh, powerful and they can be very destructive. Uh, in 1919, as Mustafa Kemal uh, was organizing uh, his nationalist struggle, the nationalist struggle in Anatolia. And that's of course the, the major sort of breaking point between the Ottoman Empire and the modern Turkish Republic. A group of uh, officers, military officers and intellectuals actually went to Baku uh, in 1919, uh, trying to develop this other kind of project, which was uh, to reestablish this Turkish land, this Turan, and they saw Baku as a gateway to this. And they started agitating there, organizing, um, and then they had this naive expectation in 1919 that, that once the Russian Tsarist Empire had collapsed and disappeared, all these Turkic communities would rise and then they would uh, band together and form this new powerful entity, powerful empire. Uh, and, and then uh, these remnants, these this Turkish intellectuals and military leaders would lead this, this, this effort. And they actually, one thing they did at the time in 1919, they did fight against Armenians in 1919 in Karabakh. Um, and that is perhaps not 1990s, but 1919 maybe can be thought of as the first conflict in some ways. So uh, it is ironic also, we should mention that among these military leaders and intellectuals who were roaming around in Azerbaijan in 1919 was uh, Bahatin Shakir, uh, who was one of the architects of Armenian genocide in uh, 1915 as one of the major sort of organizers of the secret uh, police, uh, the Teşkilat-ı the, um, uh, the secret, secret organization uh, that, that led that effort uh, in 1915. So um, eventually, of course, uh, Red Army was victorious and, uh, and uh, a Soviet Republic of uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia were established eventually. Um, and it, an interesting event there again, and uh, kind of relevant to our discussion, uh, was a first Congress of Eastern Nationalities that was held in Baku in September 1920. And this was um, staged, uh, this was chaired by uh, Zinoviev, who's very uh, close to Lenin, one of the leaders of Bolshevik Revolution. And this event in 1919 in Baku by Bolsheviks was again, I mean, it's a similar way, it's, it's similar to the naivete in a way of perhaps of um, this Ottoman, uh, Ottoman intellectuals. Uh, here again, the idea was to promote, to support national liberation of all kinds of uh, minorities, 
but their main goal was to really undermine the British Empire's efforts in Central Asia and in South Asia. So supporting national minorities, not necessarily because they really um, uh, had this idea of independent states in that geography, but uh, mostly because they wanted to undermine uh, what, the, what the British Empire was trying to do in other parts of Asia. Eventually, of course, all these national uh, minorities also were subsumed under the Bolshevik umbrella in Soviet republics. And what, uh, and as this, uh, uh, this, this Congress was taking place, the Bolsheviks clearly saw the, the Turkish efforts of, about this space, this Turkish world and supporting, to, supporting that um, as, a, um, as another form of imperialism. Uh, similar to British imperialism, they were very much opposed to it, so much so that Enver Pasha, the young Turk leader, tried to uh, attended this conference and tried to speak, and he was present, prevented from speaking at the conference. Uh, and he, of course, take, took off after uh, the Bolshevik victory into Central Asia and died uh, fighting the, the Soviet army in Tajikistan. In a, in a really uh, tragic effort, uh, uh, this dream of unifying uh, Turkish communities uh, in Asia. So, um, uh, so this is, uh, the, the, and at the same time, again, uh, this, this again uh, shows how uh, local issues and local ideas and local interests become um, uh, forgotten and used by external powers. And, uh, and what happens at the end is that uh, the, the interest of, of the major big actors prevail over what's going on on the ground. In this case, in 1920, um, as this conference was happening and shortly thereafter in 1921, uh, in 1922, uh, the Kemalist government, uh, the new nationalist Turkish state signed a series of agreements with the Soviet uh, Union that uh, finalized with some territorial kind of exchanges, finalized the borders between the Soviet Union and Turkey, which of course also meant the borders between the Soviet, uh, between the Soviet republics of uh, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey. So um, it's, uh, so that is, uh, so that was, that was settled. Um, and uh, so when, so that was the real kind of this, this ideology trying to push uh, these broader dreams of unifying people, et cetera, whereas on the ground facts uh, have to do with diverse interests and diverse conflicts uh, that are occasionally and frequently taken advantage of by external factors for their own reasons. And Vaj Pasha tried to do that, the Russians tried to do that, the Bolsheviks, the British, and of course, most recently now, uh, we are seeing uh, the Turkish government. Now, the, during the Cold War, after this, these borders were settled, uh, during most of the Cold War, even though geographically these worlds, uh, the you know, Caucasus is quite close to Turkey, uh, the, the uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of relationships, uh, the, the two were quite removed from each other. Um, there was a very strong anti-communist rhetoric in relationship to these groups in Turkey. They were referred to as enslaved Turks officially. 
um, but it doesn't really, uh, it wasn't really on the agenda of, of, um, of Turkey as it saw itself during the Cold War. It was very much a sort of a NATO member, a US ally, uh, not so much really having much of an independent foreign policy at the time for most of that period, Turkey. Uh, this started to change a little bit in 1980s and 90s, the end of the Cold War. Uh, that time there was, a, again, a whole kinds of uh, rhetoric that came out of Turkey uh, in terms of helping and rescuing and protecting and promoting our brothers. Uh, so a lot of this had to do with economic investments, etc. But once again, the it was it quickly became very clear that that was really uh, not having had much interaction during those time period. Uh, the the uh, the efforts were really based on assumptions that didn't have uh, much bearing on reality. So um, uh, in this kind of uh, environment, uh, Turkey, uh, as I said, uh, most recently uh, in the most recent conflict, just like it did in other parts of the Middle East, in Libya. Uh, in, um, uh, in Syria, um, even further in relationship to uh, Gulf states, um, it, it really uh, is trying to uh, take advantage of this vacuum that emerged in this part of the world and became particularly kind of inviting for uh, countries like Russia and Turkey in the aftermath of the Iraq war uh, and also um, during the Trump administration's uh, sort of uh, uh, policy of relative withdrawal from this area and letting regional powers um, uh, a lot of space. In that kind of environment, Turkey uh, tried to fill some of this gap uh, as a regional power. Um, and uh, this was done, uh, as I said in the opening, um, partly to deal with growing domestic uh, difficulties uh, that the Erdogan administration is having, uh, but it also, um, uh, it also kind of uses this image of Turkey as a big regional power uh, to gain support uh, in the region and domestically. Uh, and it's not only in Azerbaijan and, and are in relationship to that conflict, but it is also um, in other parts of the region. For example, the Turkish foreign minister in a recent visit to uh, the Ukraine, to Ukraine, where uh, actually the relations between those two countries, Turkey and Ukraine, are, are, are improving. But nevertheless, while they were visiting, they also made an effort of uh, meeting with the, the, the uh, indigenous Turkic community leaders the Gagaos and and Alaska, uh, and 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 send this message of again this this community this support uh, for ethnic uh, ethnic Turkish uh, communities. So, so that is uh, as we go into this next phase, um, and there is no uh, doubt. I think it's no question. I think everybody agrees uh, that Turkey's military help. Uh, Azerbaijan already had spent quite a bit on its own uh, on on armies and and and, and military uh, made a difference in the resolution. As a result, both Russia and Turkey are likely to be um, major players uh, in the region for a while. Um, 
but uh, it can also, I think, be said that uh, this and other adventures that Turkey is involved in uh, can lead to the situation where the country uh, that is indigenously domestically not very strong right now is overextending itself, making it vulnerable, and especially faced with a new administration in the United States and perhaps a newly invigorated NATO and Western alliance, uh, it can find its room for maneuver uh, somewhat constrained and limited uh, as we move forward um, uh, in the next um, you know, year or so. So I'm going to end here. And uh, any questions you may have, I'll be happy to answer. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you, Rashad. Uh, so now uh, I'll ask the, all the presenters to turn their screens on. Um, before going further, I want to thank Janine Mitchell Jomartolu, who organized this panel uh, through heroic efforts, uh, and also uh, Phil Lyon and Jessica Myerson for uh, organizing this webinar, making it happen. Uh, so I'm going to field some of the questions that have been asked. Um, I'll try to do it sort of sequentially and, and logically. Uh, if you do have questions um, as the conversation continues, please add them. So uh, to start, there's a question about, uh, so I'll just read it. There's been, uh, there seems to have been a huge intelligence failure on the part of Russia and Armenia about Azeri military strength. Was Russia really caught by surprise and why didn't Russia come to the military aid of Armenia? So um, were there intelligence failures on the, on the part of um, Armenia and Russia about Azerbaijan and um, why didn't Russia come to the aid of its perceived ally in the region? Anyone can, can take this. Um, go ahead, uh, Kamal. Uh, thank you. I don't think <clears throat> that there was a huge intelligence failure, uh, at least in part in Russia, uh, that R Russia understood very well the military cap capabilities of both sides. And it actually is very, very much evident in the supply of weapons. It was relying more uh, on itself as a deterrent uh, for the escalation of the hostilities. That might have been um, policy miscalculation or uh, wishful thinking on the, on the part of Russia that this is not going to escalate. If that is the case, then Russia was obvious, that was obvious miscalculation on the Russian side. But at the same time, Russia understood that in this situation, uh, losing one uh, of the states with which it had uh, very good relations, because Russia maintained good relations with both Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, closer to, to Armenia, at least uh, formally in, in many ways, but also maintaining a very good relationship with, with Azerbaijan. Losing one for Russia, and that was there from the beginning, meant significantly, significantly weakening its position in the South Caucasus, especially on the background that it already had uh, uh, almost no diplomatic relations with Georgia. Uh, so the goal for Russia was to maintain this relationship, this, if not balanced, at least close relationship with both states. And that's why coming unilaterally to the aid of Armenia uh, it, it would severe that uh, relationship with Azerbaijan, 
or fully backing Azerbaijan would alienate Armenia completely, albeit uh, huge leverage that Russia has in Armenia. It also uh, was it, it also was an understanding that the agenda that it has in its near abroad policy uh, was, con especially in South Caucasus, was contingent on good relationship with both uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. If you want to top that up with the, that there was no formal um, was no formal ability for Russia's formal excuse for Russia to intervene is that because the territory is recognized as Azerbaijani, the treaties that security treaties that it has with Armenia uh, could not be a valid excuse to intervene. So, and that's what Russia stated uh, openly. If you want to treat it as an excuse, you can, but there's also an understanding that, that, that Russia maintains um, some, some kind of image of, of a of a, or a personality of following the international law to, to a certain degree. And if it uh, wants to, uh, and if it, if, if it wants to uh, avoid something, it first points out to the breaches of international law uh, by the Western states. It's, it's also a very common tactic that Russia has. I think that's about enough about that question from me. Jumping as well. Thank you. Uh, so thank you for the question. Um, I think the question comes though with an assumption that alliance means some kind of uh, more than it means, right? So there is certain, uh, of course, Alliance between Russia and Armenia. There are also very good relationship between Russia and Azerbaijan, as Kamal mentioned. Um, so it was always very clear, I think, from Russian end, and this might have been perhaps misunderstood in Armenia, but I do believe that Russia was pretty clear that its security guarantees apply to the territory of the Republic of Armenia only. Uh, they do not apply uh, to anything uh, yeah, in Karabakh uh, or let alone the territories uh, surrounding Karabakh prior to this war. Now that Russia is, of course, a peacekeeper on the ground, that's a very different conversation. Now, Russia itself is a guarantor of the security of the Armenian population remaining in Karabakh. So I'm not talking about current situation, but prior to the recent war, again, there was no, never any guarantees given by Russia to, to the alliance, to anything uh, outside of the borders of Republic of Armenia. So that's first. Uh, so I do not see there any intelligence failure on the Russian end, at least there might have been on the Armenian end, uh, who probably did overestimate its own military capacity and did underestimate uh, Azerbaijan's uh, military capacity, or did not believe that the war would happen in the first place, which is also a big strategic blunder uh, to count on that. Uh, having said that, uh, second part of, of this uh, for me is that we are assuming that the war, yes, there are periods where the war was not beneficial for Russia, but currently, uh, whether Russia, I, I, I have no intention, I have no reason to see Russia as an instigator of the conflict, I don't think it was, uh, but it's clearly the benefactor of the conflict. If you look into who benefited the most out of this conflict, obviously Azerbaijan, yeah, by uh, retaking uh, territories, but second, after uh, clearly easily uh, would be Russia because uh, it really lost nothing, essentially it invested nothing and yet it came out uh, by far as the strongest power uh, in this region, pushing out at least uh, US uh, and European Union to very secondary, not tertiary roles 
uh, then Turkey also, of course, became a major actor. So we can talk about three actors who benefited in Russia, Turkey, and Azerbaijan. And yet Russia invested the least uh, uh, into this. Yeah, it had no boots on the ground. It didn't lose any uh, personnel and simply came out as a benefactor, including geopolitically. So I see a big difference between Armenia's interest and Russia's interest in this conversation. Uh, having said that, uh, I also don't want to discount the positive role of Russia because as in July escalation, as in 1994, as well as now, Russia was really the only uh, power, regional power, global power that acted as an uh, intermediary, as a peacekeeper and who helped the parties to stop the conflict. So I would say it benefited from the conflict on the one end and at the same time acted as a peacekeeper, stopping at least the bloodshed. Uh, that was becoming very devastating uh, on the ground. Thank you. Great, thanks. Uh, so there's uh, a question about oil and gas pipelines. So um, uh, so as, as many know, um, oil and gas pipelines uh, run uh, from the Caspian through Turkey and feed Europe. Um, this question implies that it was surprising that Armenia didn't target these pipelines. Uh, even though they would have uh, a major impact on Azerbaijan's economy. Could someone explain why such attacks have not occurred? Is it a matter of wanting to keep the EU and possibly US out, um, out of their involvement? Uh, yeah, come on. Uh, the, the, answer, the answer to that, that question is twofold. First and foremost, the US and EU involvement wouldn't happen even if Armenia attacked the the pipe the pipelines at, at least not direct and physical if that is what is meant by the question uh, it would however uh, severely impact the relations of armenia uh, with uh, its partners in the west simply because it would it would demonstrate uh, that the interest their interests were discounted uh, when taking that decision secondly in the such short period of time, it would not, in the short term, it would not hurt the economy of Azerbaijan enough uh, to, to, be, to be able to be beneficial uh, during the hostilities. So to say it would hurt Azerbaijan economically, but in the midterm, the earliest. And that would mean that nothing would be gained from attacking the pipe, pipelines. Okay, and then... Um... Here's a question or two about uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan. So um, one question is, can the warm cooperation between Turkey and Azerbaijan pave the way for a confederation plus, plus Uzbekistan and presumably other Central Asian states in the future, um, right, touching on historical dreams uh, from the past century? And then another question that seems to have disappeared um, was what is Turkey, what is the perception of the Turkish government and Turkish citizens toward Azerbaijan. Um, and I think the implication was that it might differ from how uh, Azerbaijanis perceive that Turkey um, thinks about Azerbaijan. So maybe Rashad would be best to handle this one. Yeah. Um, so um, the confederation, I, I don't really see uh, any uh, practical really basis uh, either. I mean, there might be cooperation. I think there is uh, there's a lot of uh, going back to 18, 1980s, 1990s, uh, economic uh, relations among these countries already, but uh, I really don't see, of course, I mean, in, from either side, any um, uh, any any um, 
any scenario in which we would have a formal confederation among these countries. Um, it's also um, uh, in terms of uh, the perception, as I uh, mentioned uh, in 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 my uh, in my presentation, it's very um, uh, it's very. I mean, I don't know. I can the best word would be uh, superficial. Uh, ironically, of course, the um, the uh, Azerbaijani Turkish is the most easily uh, comprehensible uh, for uh, for Turks in Turkey. There are some. Uh, different usages, etc. But without any additional training or education or whatever, uh, you can you can really understand, and that of course uh, makes a difference. Uh, so um, uh, on popular media, television, etc. So there's much more of a awareness. Uh, it's closer. Uh, maybe there is more, increasingly more knowledge. Uh, but there's always this, uh, I may be wrong, but I think uh, uh, my sense is that there's always this uh, almost a surprise um, how, uh, how rich Azerbaijan has become, uh, partly as a result of um, you know, oil in the last uh, decades and uh, it's strong. Um, and uh, and that, that really creates almost this, this a bit of a, of a surprise sometimes. Uh, but there's much more of a, a more compared to earlier times, I think a more realistic um, understanding uh, or knowledge about the area. I think social media plays a very important role. Um, uh, but again, this very long, deep power of this ideological uh, affinity uh, that, that has been there for a long time, I think plays an important role too. Thank you. Uh, so here's um, a question that I want to uh, maybe expand into a broader one. So the question is, can Armenia's invasion of Karabakh be identified with Turkey's invasion of Cyprus, uh, meaning historical and cultural ties protecting cognates from annihilation? Uh, maybe more broadly, I, I would ask, what are some other precedents or similar cases that we can refer to in thinking about the long-term sustainability of, of peace in this region. Um, Kamal mentioned uh, conflict between Swedes and Finns. Um, this is a part of the world that's not often compared to the South Caucasus, but, but why not? Are there other models out there from the perspective of uh, long-term reconciliation um, and conflict resolution that might uh, be useful as a guide for uh, what's gonna happen next in this region? And here I look to the... Uh, Conflict resolution specialist of the panel, Kamal, and then Philip. <laughs> the second uh, case that I would compare the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh with, uh, in terms of the peaceful resolution, would be Austrian-Italian conflict of the South Tyrol, and it has actually a very nuanced uh, autonomy. It's uh, part of Italy now, but uh, the, lang the language where there is both German, there's uh, also another uh, very small ethnic group there, Ladins, uh, have their own language and Italian. And basically, the, the region is divided in a very complicated system of self-governance, where you have a balance between all these uh, uh, ethnic groups living with each other, and even places in the area carried uh, double names uh, and are officially called with two names, depending on the language that is being used uh, without going in 
too, too many details, but it could have been also another autonomous solution that can be used for, that could have been used before the new status quo now in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, for example, uh, seven regions being uh, singled out as an Azerbaijani uh, part and Nagorno-Karabakh as a predominant Armenian part with their own uh, intricate system uh, of self-governance uh, that some issues to be resolved together and some issues independently from each other autonomously and then the connection to the center. Uh, but I would say that in the realities of a South Caucasus, that might have been a much a goal that would be much harder to achieve rather than very straightforward Holland uh, autonomy. If I can just add also this relates to the Cyprus conflict. Um, you know, I mean, when you think about uh, that as a model, uh, that model is based on the assumption that um, these ethnic groups, however way you define them, um, have to live separately. I mean, that involves uh, forceful kind of, uh, you know, movement, uh, uh, forceful removal of very large numbers of people from their homes, from their, you know, kind of uh, places they live for generations to another part. And then once you separate and then you maintain that separation with military force, um, then of course, I mean, there is no conflict. There is quote unquote peace and quiet. Uh, but on the ground, of course, it invariably leads to a relative impoverishment um, of the areas uh, that are involved. I mean, Northern Cyprus uh, is, is today is, is in a limbo still after almost 50 years. Um, it's, you know, um, anyways, I mean, that's a whole different topic. So on the face of it, if you assume, if you take the assumption that they need to be separated, that may be a model, but it is really, um, it's the similar uh, kind of situation that happened, of course, in the end of the, the end of the Ottoman Empire with the forceful removal of 3 million or more Greeks, Orthodox Greeks from Anatolia, from modern Turkey into Greece. Because again, there was this assumption that ethnicities, the ethnic groups and national groups had to live separately. So, um, so if that's the premise, unfortunately, we are in a in a in a time uh, right now uh, in the world at this point in world history, the nationalist forces, ideas, ideologies are once again becoming uh, extraordinarily powerful, uh, and they are, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons, uh, for you know, they are becoming for people a sense of you know security, protection. Given that environment, um, it's very hard to kind of argue against this, you know, separation perhaps. But personally, um, I think, uh, you know, if you move beyond this, you know, kind of limited or just absence of conflict, perhaps, maybe, uh, but what it means for people on the ground is a lot more complicated, I think, um, uh, difficult. Right, I'm also jumping on this question. Uh, so as a matter of principle, I would agree with uh, Razat and hope that's the like more integrative yeah, common uh, living uh, arrangement uh, is a better one. And I think that it should strive towards that uh, sometime down the road. Uh, and I have been a big proponent of that, I would say until very recently in this region, but for many reasons, yeah, I personally would not uh, push that as a solution right now for a number of reasons. First of all, as you mentioned, 
this is not where the world is like normatively we don't have uh, the protections, even the kind we had, let's say in the 90s, and uh, yeah, nobody will even try to intervene if there is any kind of serious violence as we saw just now. Uh, and really, if you look into the conflicts where that have coexistence, uh, or where people live in the same space, they haven't been necessarily uh, any more peaceful than the, where, the ones that where we had separation. Yeah, examples will be uh, Bosnia or Lebanon, uh, even Northern Ireland being situated in Europe, still they have a very serious problems uh, of maintain, you know, managing to live together. Uh, but they, of course, had no choice to separate because it's very, really, very well integrated uh, areas in terms of ethnic um, cohabitation. So if I, unfortunately, I'll put this aside uh, yeah, as a solution. Uh, for now, considering that we also have uh, already de facto separation, so we don't have to separate, that's full, full ethnic cleansing and separation happened 30 years ago, in late 80s uh, and 90s during that, uh, I still refer to it as First Karabakh War. Uh, so we do have already had very clear lines and uh, absence of cohabitation. Again, very unfortunate, uh, but coming from that uh, kind of reality on the ground, I'd say there are like three different scenarios here still, or three different uh, uh, types of conflicts we can look at. And I would want to look at them as steps one, two, three. So one is the current other post-Soviet conflicts. I think that is the most closest uh, really comparison we can have uh, because uh, in terms of political institutions, political legacy, uh, powers involved and so on. So this conflict, uh, Karabakh is more similar to Southeast Asia, Georgia, uh, Crimea, Ukraine and so on than to Cyprus or anything in Europe. Uh, so the same forces that are in play in these conflicts are also in play in Karabakh. And that's an important uh, dynamic to pay attention to. So I think this will very likely follow South Ossetian scenario before it, fo it follows uh, Cyprus scenario. So that's where we are. Yeah, so this kind of short term, that's where we are. Where we would go in a long term perspective, I would completely agree with Kamal that uh, Allen Island model is uh, probably something we should strive for. Uh, and interestingly, it's a non-model in the region because that has been continually offered, at least in early years of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict as a model to solve uh, because essentially it was a compromise version that was giving both sides at least a little bit of what they want. On the map, Karabakh was remaining in Azerbaijan. It wasn't challenging yeah, territorial integrity. Uh, uh, and yet, de facto, it was uh, remain, retaining a lot of... Uh, uh, provisions that essentially of self-governance and uh, de facto independence while formally staying in Azerbaijan. It was rejected uh, in the past many times. Uh, I'm very well aware that Armenians were rejecting it because they were uh, looking for full independence. Full independence being off the table uh, realistically at this point. Uh, uh, perhaps there can be a second look at this. Uh, so I think that is something to strive towards. That should be, in my view, the third and the final step. Uh, but I would put Cyprus as a kind of mid seems this is, a, this is another conflict you mentioned, uh, as a, kind of the middle step between this current South Asian type scenario and final Allen Island type scenario. I think Cyprus is important kind of middle ground in the sense that you need to move towards a place where you are separated yet able to uh, kind of rule out violence, but also gradually engage in normalization where you can yeah, uh, have economic cooperation. Overall, uh, the temperature is cooled down. There is no such as like uh, explicit hate speech being um, 
uh, flown around, or especially on the state level and so on. So it's a uh, kind of getting through that step before getting to a more final uh, solution uh, might be a good one to three step approach that of course requires a lot of effort from initially more academic community, perhaps putting ideas on the table and then moving it to the negotiation table. Hey, Kamal, did you want to follow up? Yeah, just uh, just a small side note. The, the, the problem how the, uh, in the beginning of the negotiations in Nagorno-Karabakh, the all on dialogue solution was proposed. The problem how it was proposed. It was proposed as something template, something that you can copy and paste. And it was done so unprofessionally. It's uh, it's surprising uh, uh, that the, the with that kind of attitude, the negotiations didn't fall apart right there in that place. Uh, the the all down solution is of course much more nuanced, and it's principles that you want to uh, take from that solution and then adapt it to the realities uh, of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. If you would do it the uh, more appropriate way and let, of course, the details be negotiated and run out between between the sides. And that's what we've been lacking in the beginning of the 90s and that's much more nuanced and uh, so say a much more sophisticated approach than this template solutions. But you still continue in the peace building and uh, resolution, peace, uh, conflict resolution processes uh, to hear them quite constantly. Here is a working uh, template. Please copy and paste it. That never works. What has been the domestic reception in countries of the region regarding this week's announcement of opening communication and transport links? Are these links a necessary but perhaps not sufficient condition for peace? I can pick it up. Uh, this one of to cover the Armenian angle. Uh, the Perception is uh, rather negative in Armenia for a simple reason that uh, when Pashinyan went to Moscow to meet uh, President Aliyev and President Putin, uh, the prior, the main question put in front of him by the Armenian public was the return of prisoners of war. So anything that any agreement that if he came back without prisoners of war with him, essentially, uh, as an agreement would be perceived negatively, I think for a good reason. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. So essentially, it almost doesn't matter what he brought back that didn't include the return of prisoners of war would be perceived negatively. So that was the reaction. So he received a very big backlash for not solving this humanitarian issue. Uh, having said that, uh, in a bigger picture, I personally yeah, don't see much downsides to opening of borders and uh, transportation lines. That's a, clearly one of the uh, pillars of a future uh, peace. So that's on its own uh, is a I would consider uh, a positive development, but on its own, is, as you mentioned, is absolutely not enough uh, to bring peace because we have, again, from very violent rhetoric to presence of humanitarian concerns to uh, effect effectively revanchism and preparation for new war, potentially over territory of Armenia. All, all of these together you know, are still keeping us very close to new war rather than new peace, even if uh, there is train going back and forth. Okay, so uh, I have a lot of questions now. I'm gonna try to uh, combine them as much as possible so we can get uh, to answer people's questions. And some have already been answered. So uh, here's a question about social media. The era of social media has made it much easier to sustain animosity and spread misinformation as we continue to see. 
can social media be transformed into a tool for peace building and transitional justice or must these peace building processes simply find ways to speak louder than voices on Facebook and Twitter? This is certainly an issue that was not around in, 19, in the early 1990s. Who would like to address that? I just say one thing, I mean, uh, in general, uh, obviously this is something people are uh, talking about a lot now uh, in the United States, everywhere. Uh, I think there is this question of um, some moderation, um, sort of these lists are not moderated, uh, which uh, leads to, you know, uh, information and misinformation be out there at the same time. In the absence of some agreed upon way of moderating some of these lists, uh, I think it's hard to just take it just as something that will have a, um, a overwhelmingly positive role in these kinds of situations. Having said that, it's very hard to prevent them. Of course, um, it's not desirable to, to really block them or to, to, to close them down. Um, but it is a topic that is becoming uh, really very, very big, very fast. And I think there has to will eventually I would see, I would suspect that this will become a topic for big um, international organizations or, or even treaties to tackle. Uh, because obviously uh, it's playing, a, it, it's a very unpredictable role in all kinds of situations. Yeah, if I can support uh, Rasad's point, I think this is a question way beyond the borders of uh, Caucasus. Uh, and uh, how, to, how to make this short, I'm meeting. Uh, essentially, the media, in my view, yes, of, uh, agreeing with Benedict Adamson's argument, the print media in the past was really at the uh, roots of a nation state as we know it. So social media essentially pushing out uh, traditional previous uh, round of media is transforming really everything that's transforming in the first uh, place, the concept of nation state itself. So that has very major repercussions for any relationship yeah, within states and uh, between states. So that's why there's a much, much bigger question that I don't think we can tackle in 20, 30 minutes uh, here. Uh, so bringing it to more immediate ground uh, what's happening, uh, it contributes to both, right? So on the one hand, because we have such a big isolation, physically Armenians and Azerbaijanis are fully cut off from each other for 30 years. Uh, and there was no contact really until social media, like regular contact until social media appeared other than uh, among a few people who were able to fly to some third country to meet up. Uh, social media really changed that drastically. Uh, an example of work I do for you know, over, over 15 years is dialogue uh, projects between, between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, and we are discussing, for example, history, one of the topics under discussion. Until social media became uh, mainstreamed, there was absolutely no connection. As in Armenians had one story, Azerbaijan is different, and you would think these are one from Brazil, another one from uh, uh, I don't know, New Zealand. There is not no connection between these two whatsoever. Yeah, they had no awareness of the stories circulated on the other side about themselves. Suddenly it changed. Now everybody is very well aware of each other's stories. So communication is there. People know what's happening on the other side, what people think about them. Uh, it can be both uh, positive and negative. Of course, nationalist forces are pretty strong. These echo chambers where the hate is perpetuated is pretty strong. But it also provides, again, a lot of opportunities for uh, communication. So it's also used heavily on peace building. So my 
final point here being that there should be a big investment made to use social media as it stands, uh, at least to a degree that can counterbalance the negative influence of it, uh, because negative one uh, is clearly dominant right now. There are uh, several questions about uh, external uh, actors in the peace building process. Um, so uh, one question is, do you see the, a role for the OSCE Minsk group and co-chairs for the conflict resolution process to come? If yes, is there a need to reform the format with additional or other members? Uh, and for the EU, which role should the EU take for the peace process in its neighborhood? I can add to that there was that there are several questions about the policies of the incoming Biden administration toward the conflict. Does anybody have um, any insights or predictions on that? So uh, come on. Yeah, I, I would I would take OSCE and, and leave Biden to people more associated with the United States. Um, but OSCE means group essentially failed uh, in its role very badly, by the way. Uh, it basically uh, mediating body responsible for a lot of uh, maintenance of the status quo uh, in the conflict in very weak uh, resolution policies with a plan that it couldn't push through. Although at some point it's, it had to be aware that its mediating uh, methods are not working and that it would have to shift to an approach where you would have to apply political pressure on the sides. It failed to do so. Uh, and it also failed to effectively adapt to the changing realities on the ground in the negotiations uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. So all in all, such, such a body would better be off uh, to the history, I would say, uh, from my opinion and my point of view. And as we also have seen the um, political situation change and geopolitical situation change with the recent outbreak in fighting and the uh, new status quo forming, we can see that the regional solution would be much, much more acceptable, I would say, and easier pushed for than the international solution. And I've also seen the question about um, briefly about the Uni United Nations and its possible peace conference for that. I would say that regionalization of a question would is much more feasible and achievable. And actually, if that effort is real, it might lead to a more sustainable peace than anything that would be, uh, so, to, so to say, discussed or um, constructed globally in this sense. It's not because I'm anti-globalist, it's just the realities on the ground. And also, again, experiences from Oland Islands, where the regional states took the responsibility for demilitarization, for common security, uh, and that mechan mechanism actually proven to be working for uh, this year is going to be 100 years. So maybe there is something to regionalization of the security problems and the solution based on the common understanding. Another, uh, uh, another indication here that I see is this exact meeting with, between Pashinyan, uh, Alev, and Putin in Moscow, uh, when the, the, first, the first agreement right after the hostilities was signed. I was 
I was under the impression that Russia, Russia's role and Russia's intentions were uh, to basically go back to the situation prior uh, to the conf- uh, to the outbreak in the conflict, to go into the new status quo, but also essentially freeze it and maintain its political uh, pressure there indefinitely. But when the Russia right now pushed for more economic integration, it's also an indicator that Russia thinks differently about its influence. This connection, this transport connection, transport routes, first of all, it sees them as beneficial, not in the least because they're a separate connection with Georgia. And this infrastructure, it sees as the future for possible uh, establishment of ties both with Turkey, but also with Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it's a shift from the policy of this hard power to a more economic influence and economic ties between the regional states. So there is this clear shift. Uh, Previously to to that development, I thought that Russia was still viewing itself as a hard power, uh, as a a hard mm, power ultimate solution for everything uh, when it comes to the near abroad. It seems that this, this is changing and this is shifting. And in the mm, longer term, it's going to be beneficial, of course, because such economic ties uh, are going to, in, in any case, feed to, to, to a situation where you would be closer to peace than to war. Again, when you have something to lose, it's harder to go to war. Vesad, uh, you are muted if you are speaking. Uh, just the... <laughs> Uh, Biden, uh, I see this kind of transition as one from, you know, with, with the Trump, uh, this transactional approach to foreign policy where uh, relations um, between US and a state and the leader played such a big role. And plus there was this still not completely explained kind of relationship between Trump and Putin himself. And all those things, I think, shaped uh, the U.S. approach under Trump. Um, I think there is, uh, it looks like there will be much more of an emphasis on diplomacy and um, strengthening international alliances uh, and question of human rights will become much more important. And all those things, I think, uh, do uh, uh, show, perhaps suggest a new direction. There is, of course, I mean, you look at the, the, the people who have been appointed to various positions, there's always the danger, of course, uh, that once again, US will move into a direction of uh, being too kind of willing to, to step in uh, to shape the, 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 the situations, conditions and different conflicts. Uh, and that, of course, sometimes leads to uh, unintended consequences. There are a lot of examples of this. It's something to, to, to really think about. But nevertheless, I think there, there, it looks like there will be a major shift, uh, a, 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 a course correction of some sorts towards a much more um, uh, globalist uh, kind of approach that brings in international organizations and then puts these issues of human rights and other concerns um, on the agenda. I mean, USAID, uh, Samantha Power is going to head it and apparently she will be part of the National Security Council. So there's, there's some signs that there will be a different approach, I think. I can also uh, speak a bit on this one. Uh, so this is one area where I have made a couple of disagreements with Kamal and uh, agree very much with what Prasad was saying. 
in the sense that for failures, I wouldn't put any failure on the mean screw, frankly. Uh, we need to understand what it was uh, from the very beginning. These are three global powers uh, who had uh, sometimes coinciding, sometimes differing approaches uh, to this region or any other region of the world. So there was so much that could be expected from them uh, and uh, should have been expected from them. And there were periods where, yes, they were not contributing to the solution, but there were periods when they were. Uh, they, they were very much aligned, for example, during the Dmitry Medvedev presidency in 2008, 2011, and Obama and Medvedev were trying to reset Russia-US relations. They were very much also involved in trying to solve this conflict. Uh, so I would go back to saying that, in my opinion, the primary responsibility, I don't 95% of the responsibility lies with the parties themselves, uh, refusing to make any steps toward solution. Uh, in periods where there was an opening. Uh, I would agree that there were periods where it would not be possible, so even if they wanted to, such as you know, maybe, uh, uh, let's say, past uh, Medvedev period, at least early past Medvedev period, but there were also periods where they could solve it and refuse to. Uh, so responsibility is with them, the parties. Now, Minsk Group, uh, I here to, uh, I do have a concern. I do see this region, the solution, uh, kind of long-term future of this region, if it is to develop as a bridge between Russia, uh, Turkey, Iran, and the West. Uh, it has been historically there. Yeah, so it is culturally, historically, geographically, for by many um, dynamics, it's kind of well situated to act as a bridge. Armenia right now is a both uh, in European integration processes, it's associate member of European Union. It's also in the Eurasian Union. Azerbaijan managed to stay neutral and they don't really align with one or the other either. Yeah, so they are really well positioned to kind of link up these two worlds as opposed to picking a side and just integrating too far with one or the other. And I do believe that that should be the development if they are to retain any degree of uh, sovereignty and self-control. Uh, that does mean uh, absolutely not pushing out Russia or any attempt to do that. That's impossible. That's very disastrous if it's attempted for the region, but uh, not also cutting ties with the US and Europe. Uh, just as important, and we are at this crossroad in a way where it could go in the direction of completely cutting ties with the US uh, and Europe for at least Armenia and Azerbaijan, less so Georgia perhaps. Uh, so I do see that very important uh, to keep the integration with European Union uh, connection with the United States. And from this point of view, uh, I'd say yes, that Minsk Group or whatever comes to replace it is as good as individual countries involved. Uh, last four years, essentially in Trump administration, US didn't exist really. Uh, again, but it's not limited to Trump. The trend started with Obama when he pretty much uh, gave the primary uh, role in this region to Russia and was following Russian lead as opposed to uh, trying to really uh, have proactive policy. I would agree with Rasat that that will very likely change, although Biden was uh, Obama's vice president, but uh, he seemed to be having much more uh, proactive approach uh, by assuming by who is now appointing, even though they were Obama folks, but they uh, were also I believe reassess perhaps their relationship to the region and their understanding of Russian role in the region and so on. So I would expect more uh, active approach, but it has to be done carefully uh, because the landscape changed a lot since Obama Biden were last in the last four years were 
in power. So absolutely, it shouldn't be done in any aggressive and overly, um, yeah, overly aggressive way. But some uh, slower involvement, uh, bigger involvement than they have now is key to keeping at least some degree of democratization in this region and some degree of um, region continuing to be a bridge as opposed to just falling into one camp in the global sense or the other. About half of the remaining questions are variations on the theme of nationalism. They're, the questioners seem to express pessimism about a long-term sustainable peace because <clears throat> of the symbolism attached to Nagorno-Karabakh uh, in both countries, um, the hatred that has been built up over the years through nationalist rhetoric. Um, there's mention in particular of the uh, Armenian diaspora, uh, the so-called alley of martyrs in Baku. Um, is there any reason why we should not be pessimistic about the future of, of these two countries to get along given the extreme nationalism verging on, on hatred uh, in these countries over the last 30 years? Come on. Oh, come on. Go, go ahead, Philip. No, go ahead. No, Philip. Go ahead. Sure. Phil, Phil, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just uh, glanced through the questions and there was, uh, I'll start from diaspora and then go to nationalism in general. Uh, as asked this before, somehow every time uh, there is a conversation, it comes up. Uh, I do believe strongly that the role of diaspora is exaggerated. It's much more of a myth than uh, a reality. Yes, diaspora exists. Diaspora, uh, specifically Armenian diaspora in this case, uh, can contribute some financial resources, perhaps do some lobbying. Uh, here and there, but it's not a driving force, has never been a driving force when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, it might be a bit of more vocal actor when it comes to uh, Turkey and genocide recognition, but it has uh, uh, very little understanding, I would say, of the dynamics connected to Karabakh or very little direct interest other than showing up to a demonstration here and there or maybe signing a petition to Congress. I'd, I'd say it has very minimal role. It had no impact on Armenian foreign policy whatsoever. Uh, starting from the 90s, continuing now, I would not exaggerate uh, that role. Again, other than support as a follower, yeah, once the directive comes from the Armenian government, they might go on lobbying for whatever they're asked to lobby. That should be the, that's the extent of it, uh, in my view at least. When it comes to uh, nationalism uh, in the countries, very major uh, issue, and nationalism is even a soft word, I would say, to what we are seeing uh, really developed. It's a very extreme, uh, degree of nationalism as the really the identities of uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijani states have been built uh, on this very ethnic ultranationalism uh, directed directly against the other, right? So the uh, whole identity post kind of uh, independence identity is built uh, in opposition uh, to the other, uh, in portraying the other as an existential threat was particularly easy to do because there was this complete ethnic cleansing and you never saw a physical other uh, to realize it's a person, right? So you only got an image from uh, the media, from the textbooks and from YouTube comments where people insult each other. Uh, and that was very much uh, yes, supported by the, the state machines. Uh, so we do have a very extreme level of this. The dehumanization is uh, very extreme. Uh, even following the war, uh, I tend to criticize primarily Armenia. I think it's more useful to focus on your own side, leaving the criticism of Azerbaijan uh, to my Azerbaijani friends and colleagues. 
but for but this was too strong of an example not to mention just a couple of days ago a stamp a postage stamp yeah official came out in Azerbaijan uh, where uh, essentially shows as Armenians as a virus being cleansed during this war, similar to coronavirus, COVID-19 being cleansed. So this is like very reminiscent, very much reminds of kind of quite genocidal rhetoric uh, we could see in Bosnia or in Rwanda and so on. So yeah, so this is a level really we are at. Uh, and I'm not, I singled out Azerbaijan because I just came out, but I could see similar images in the past, uh, very dehumanizing in Armenia as well. There is a whole cartoon series in Armenia about uh, comparing Azerbaijan to the sheep. And yeah, so this is the language being used. So it's pretty extreme and that absolutely has to be dealt with if we are able to coexist because we don't see each other as humans. It has been a very intentional politics for 30 years that needs to be reversed. So yes, I'm very pessimistic uh, as well. Uh, I agree with those who asked the question, unless we reverse course and very intentionally work to uh, rehumanize each other. Mm. And, and then on the other side is more optimistic than Phil. Uh, first, first and foremost, I, I think a lot of the perception is shaped by the social media. I almost promised myself I'm not going to be talking about the social media because I'm not an expert. But what I've seen is that dehumanization, this, this other side of the social media, is actually being amplified specifically in Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, other, even on World Wide Web and forums, that's where it's have been amplified. But when you actually face each other in the real world, I would say it's a very different picture. It's very easy to fight uh, online with this detachment um, from, from each other. And what I've seen from the videos right after the war, I've seen also the same soldiers have been fighting, shaking hands and trying to say that we stopped, we have a ceasefire, and trying to invite each other for a cup of tea later, solving the problems on the border. I don't know about, about the, uh, and then acknowledge, of course, the, the level of, of despise, especially amplified by social media, but there are also things like that that exist, proven through the uh, hard facts that when Azerbaijan and Armenians face each other, in reality, the urge to fight is less. Uh, even verbally, than it is on the social media, and maybe opening the context, more people to people context are going to to change this uh, into a more positive stream, and I'm pretty sure it is going to do that, especially if the relationship at first are not going to be uh, based on now you need to shake hands and be cordial with each other, but more on what can we both get out from from this trade, open borders, uh, a little bit of access towards each other. Uh, nobody should expect something uh, amazing happening uh, suddenly and overwhelmingly. But small steps, uh, and especially this reopening of communications in the region, uh, reopening the borders, it will lead to, to a positive result. Gradually, progressively, at some point, not immediately, of course, that's, we can forget about that. And there's going to be a lot of issues to talk out uh, after such, such fighting and such a protracted conflict. But I'm optimistic that given time and no uh, interventions from, from outside, nobody trying to, to 
get the situation violent again. I'm very hopeful that this can be a real opportunity now, and it should be used as a real opportunity to establish both long-lasting peace and uh, later lead to an ability uh, of normal uh, cohabitation, and then who knows, maybe integration, because uh, let's face it, on, in the South Caucasus, these are two closest people to each other. With all due respect to Turkey, and as Rashad, I'm skeptical about the confederation with Turkey of Azerbaijan, but Trans-Caucasian conf confederation, I think it's much less of a dream simply because of uh, the pragmatic, economic, and strategic reasons, because such confederation would have much more leverage as opposed to the regional states such as Russia, Iran, and Turkey even, and have much more economic meaning uh, and more basically more strategically relevant uh, than any kind of confederation between, between Azerbaijan and Turkey. Simple as that. Thank you. Um, so we're nearing the end of our allotted time. There's a handful of questions left and they can be roughly grouped into two sets. Um, so feel free to, to answer either or both or, or neither um, in the last remaining minutes. So one set of questions has to do with whether the current uh, equilibrium is sustainable, um, wh whether the two sides are prepared to drop their maximalist claims on Karabakh uh, and there's some kind of long-term territorial solution that both sides can agree upon so that there's not an another recurrence of the war. Is that possible? Um, second set of questions has to do with Russia and Turkey. Um, whether <clears throat> what the implications are of this conflict for Russian-Turkish relations, um, and if there's a possibility for um, the, the two sides to clash in the future. Um, so ter long-term territorial resolution and regional geopolitics. Maybe it could take one or two minutes at, at most. In terms of an agreement, uh, it, it does depend a lot on the decision that the political leaders uh, make and uh, in the first place right now Azerbaijan as the winning party kind of it has the leverage right now to decide what the next steps are. Uh, I think Armenia when it was the winning party made a big mistake and not looking at the big picture tried to kind of hold on to what it had and uh, it lost big in the long term. I hope Azerbaijan will not make the same mistake because again looking at the big picture if there is a new war I do believe it will be regional. Uh, and uh, that is again quite dangerous for anybody involved. So considering that, I do see, uh, I would hope that uh, both sides will see a need to find a compromise and compromise is possible again, such things such as Allen Island have been always on the table uh, and are very much uh, still on the table, uh, presumably, unless one of the sides chooses to really push harder and try to get more than uh, it already has. Uh, on Turkey and Russia on the war, yeah, I think I already answered by the previous question. I do see a strong potential. I think there was a tactical alliance between Russia and Turkey to push out US and Europe from the region that has been achieved. That means once US and Europe are further removed, then they become rivals. Uh, whether it's a war or not, I hope it's not. Uh, but as we saw in Syria and other parts of the region, nothing can be ruled out if such a strong country as Syria can fall apart in a very fragile region as South Caucasus can fall apart much easier. It was just, uh, just, just one thing, uh, Kamal, if, if I can, about that last point. Um, 
you know, I, I don't, I, there was this talk about Russia, Turkey kind of working together and buying these missile defense systems on the part of Turkey and alienating Turkey and uh, United States. And the talk of, of expelling Turkey from, um, you know, from NATO and all that. Uh, if you look at all the issues that Turkey was involved in with, you know, Russia and without in the last years, and most of, in most and all of them, uh, they found themselves in different uh, sides. I mean, Syria is a very good example. So there's really much maybe beyond a very, very narrow goal of carving the space uh, in the region. There isn't much that the two have in common as purpose. And I do feel actually a little bit differently about the, 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 what is likely to happen. I am thinking um, that uh, Turkey for economic reasons and other reasons under a Biden administration once again can find itself closer to the West and to NATO uh, than it did in the recent years. And in that sense, um, I'm not really thinking about a war out of war or conflict with Russia, but they will, they will uh, maintain more of a distance, I think, in the coming years, uh, the two countries. Russia-Turkey relations is not my specialty, so I'll go back to Armenian-Azerbaijan for a couple minutes and say that uh, right now, the negotiations are going to be naturally contingent on the Russian position here simply because it's right now in effective control on what is not, um, what, what, is, what is left of uh, being outside of the control of Azerbaijan um, in the region of the conflict. And that would mean that, that Russians are going to be setting up the agenda. So when it comes to the maximalist views, Nagorno-Karabakh outside the sovereignty of Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh inside of the sovereignty of Azerbaijan, Right now, Russia is in effective control uh, there, basically over the uh, over the territory, sharing responsibilities, sharing responsibilities with Armenia. Uh, the degree of that is unclear. Of course, we don't know what exactly is the, the shared responsibility there. But on the other hand, Russia says that this is international recognized territory of Azerbaijan. Clearly, and it di didn't used to do that so directly before. Uh, so in this sense, there is kind of a balancing act of Russia, if you will, uh, and every negotiation uh, about the future uh, of the uh, leftover territory, so to say, is going to be contingent on the Russian position, simply put. Mm, so some, in some way, this question is partially out of the exclusive sovereignty of both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, at least that's how it sees for right now. And the next years while the Russian peacekeeping forces are legally there under the common agreement. Thank you. Okay, and with that, we'll wrap things up. Uh, I wanna thank all of the presenters for their time. Um, this is a great discussion, uh, substantive and civil, and we need more of that these days. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the Ellison Center for Russian, East European and Central Asian Studies for sponsoring this webinar uh, and for all of uh, the <clears throat> people who uh, came to watch from wherever you are in the world. So thank you. Thank you Be very well. much.